This is Smart Women, Smart Power, a podcast that features conversations with some of the world's most powerful women. I think that we have to start getting creative about arms control and start thinking a bit more about different tools and ways to do arms control rather than just the kind of traditional bilateral nuclear treaties, which is what most of us really do still associate with arms control. We feature women who are breaking barriers and shaping the future of foreign policy, national security, international business and development. I'm Beverly Kirk, the director of the Smart Women, Smart Power Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington. On this episode of the Smart Women Pony Pathbreakers series, we discuss all things arms control, specifically the future of arms control. I'm delighted that this episode is featuring leaders I previously hosted on this podcast. Rose Gottmuller is the former Deputy Secretary General of NATO and the current Payne Distinguished Lecturer at the Center for International Security and Cooperation at Stanford University's Freeman Spogley Institute for International Studies. And Heather Williams is a lecturer in the Defense Studies Department and Center for Science and Security Studies at King's College London. Rose and Heather, welcome back. Thanks for returning to the Smart Women, Smart Power podcast. My pleasure. Thank you. Great to be here. Well, we want to talk about arms control today. It is a pivotal tool for the U.S. to manage the risk of nuclear war, and yet we've seen this administration in particular pull out of several arms control treaties over the years, and the future of arms control seems to be a bit uncertain. Rose, I'll start with you. Where do we go from here? It is true that the current administration has launched an attack on several of the arms control regimes. At least one of them, I believe, was warranted. The Russians were cheating on the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty, and I frankly believe the Russians were were hollowing out that treaty. So it was high time that we called them on it. You know, I, I worked that diplomacy very hard when I was the undersecretary, and it was uh, clear that the Russians were stiff-arming us. They weren't going to give us any good answers. And so I think it was unfortunately necessary. I do want to talk about the future of INF. I think we'll do that a little bit later. And uh, I haven't given up hope at all. But it is something that you have to look at very carefully. Sometimes it is uh, warranted to call the other party if they are cheating on an arms control treaty. In other cases, though, and here I really disagree with what the administration's done on the Open Skies Treaty. That's a treaty that uh, that is important for our allies. It's important for us. It really builds predictability and confidence uh, in Europe. But also between us and the Russians. So I think it's an important treaty. And the the Russians had been, you know, causing a few problems in the implementation world, but they were problems that could be fixed, in my view. So in that case, I didn't think what uh, they did was warranted in terms of pulling out of the treaty. Heather? I obviously I agree with everything that Rose said. I would add that I think we have to preserve what we have, what we still have. And so that includes open skies. But also, we have to extend New Star immediately or as soon as possible. And beyond that, and preserving, trying to preserve what we have, I think that we have to start getting creative about arms control and to start thinking about what are the different technologies, what are the different actors that could escalate crises, for example, or that could lead to arms racing, and start thinking a bit more about different tools and ways to do arms control rather than just the kind of traditional bilateral nuclear um, treaties, which is what most of us really do still associate with arms control. But ultimately, I think it's really going to depend on geopolitics, U.S.-Russia-China relations, 
that's going to be the main driver in terms of where we go. Well, let's dive right into the Russia-China issues. And we'll start with the INF Treaty and the questions surrounding the continuance of the New START Treaty. Is there a future for these arms control treaties? Can we move forward? How should we move forward with these two particular situations with INF and New START? Well, my answer to that is an absolute yes. I am actually somewhat an optimist on on these things because, uh, frankly, these treaties have proven so useful to the United States. We always, when we negotiate them, think about what are the U.S. national security objectives? What is U.S. national security interest associated with a particular treaty or agreement? And I think we can say that these treaties have served our national security interest. We have to make sure that they are properly implemented and that our partners are complying with them. But they do serve our national security interests. Let's just look at New START for a minute. New START will run out in February of 2021 unless it is uh, extended for five years. In the interim, though, it gives us absolute surety about what's going on inside the Russian strategic nuclear arsenal. It gives us a clear picture of what's going on with their missiles, their bombers, their submarines, with the warheads that they have deployed on them. We really get a good 24-7 picture of, of what's going on with the Russian arsenal, and we get to go look at them in person 18 times a year with on-site inspections. So it's really given us a deep knowledge of Soviet nuclear forces in a way that we'd never have if we didn't have the treaty. We'd be We'd be falling back on our, our national technical means, our reconnaissance satellites and that type of thing. We wouldn't have that intimate knowledge of the deep innards, as I call it, of the Russian strategic nuclear forces. So I think that's important. But more so, looking forward, we're right on the cusp of a nuclear modernization in the United States. I consider it a judicious modernization, and it will be as long as START remains in force under the limits of the new START treaty. So not more than 700 delivery vehicles and not more than 1,550 deployed warheads. And that limit means that uh, we can have a stable environment in which to modernize our own nuclear arsenal. If we get out of New START, the Russians, I believe, could race quickly ahead deploying more missiles and more warheads. We would not have a stable environment in which to modernize. We would be chasing them. Heather? Uh, I'm also an optimist about the value of these treaties and hopeful about that they have a future. But I do think whether or not there is a short to medium term and maybe even long term future for arms control treaties really does depend on the November election. I think there's a future for arms control when we have a new president. And because this administration has just shown a fundamental it's almost, you know, a principled um, skepticism towards arms control, and it doesn't bode well for New START even, right? So the administration has appointed U.S. envoy Marshall Billingsley to try to negotiate with the Russians on New START extension, and they have said that they will only extend New START if it incorporates China. Um, and China has made it equally clear that they won't join these strategic arms control agreements until the American and Russian arsenals are reduced. So I think if that remains the position of both sides, but particularly this administration, we really are at an impasse and New START could be the last agreement of its kind. We could be without on-site inspections, without the consultative discussions, the data exchanges, all of these wonderful things that Rose negotiated, we could be without all of that. 
And we just need that transparency more than ever now, given Russia's modernization and its expanding arsenal. So I just I just find it incredibly counterintuitive to abandon New Star at the moment when you need it most. And so things also like involving China, the fate of the JCPOA, the Iran nuclear deal and open skies with the current administration. I struggle to be optimistic, but with a change in administration, I think that enough people, including experts, politicians, advisors, and especially allies, they've spoken up and said, we want a future for arms control and have put out some ideas for how to take that forward. But ultimately, it, uh, I think a lot depends on what happens in November. If I could circle back to one thing that you raised, Rose, about Russia cheating and it being right to call them out and uh, on that, do you think continuing pursuing arms control with them is worth it if they're if they're going to cheat on the agreements? Or is that something that we just have to live with? That's a great question, Beverly. My answer to that is we always have to have our eyes wide open with any partner in an arms control treaty or agreement, uh, but especially with the Russians, given the history and, and our understanding of their predilection to, to cheat if they think they can get away with it, I guess, if they think it's in their national security interest to do so. But I also say we have to look carefully, treaty by treaty, and understand when they are actually abiding by a treaty. And that is the case with New START. This administration itself confirmed with its most recent compliance report issued in April that Russia is in full compliance with the New START treaty. So you have to keep a careful eye. You have to watch what they're doing. But our country, the United States, on an annual basis, confirms compliance treaty by treaty. And in this case, New START is one that the Russians are complying with. It is in our national security interest, as I remarked a moment ago, and we need it going forward. So I think that's really important to take it on a case-by-case basis and not make these kind of blanket statements, well, the Russians cheat, so we should never trust them. I think it, it behooves us to take careful account of when they are actually abiding by treaties that, that do serve our national security interests. I want to ask about the end of the INF Treaty and if there is any way to go back and negotiate something new, or should that even be a, a thought? Should we just end it and move forward? So the, the 1987 version of the INF Treaty, I think that is dead. And there's too much baggage in trying to renegotiate the exact same thing or something identical to it. With that said, I don't think that we should accept the end of arms control of intermediate range nuclear forces. Those are essential to controlling for managing strategic stability, for reassuring allies. So we have to find some different way to include them and incorporate them into arms control. That might involve a new start follow-on that uh, includes strategic and uh, non-strategic nuclear weapons. There's some really interesting recommendations, I think, floating around about how that might be done. But also, I think it would be really important to address them because that's what our allies keep asking for and really do care about. You know, obviously, I keep coming back to the allies because I'm sitting in Europe. But the end of the INF Treaty was really traumatic for a lot of the allies, I think. They did all come together and support U.S. withdrawal. They understood the, that Russia was cheating. 
the way that the U.S. withdrawal happened was a bit of a shock um, where Trump, I think that he just mentioned it in like an off the cuff press statement while getting on a helicopter, as opposed to a very carefully crafted diplomatic rollout strategy. So that was that was um, pretty difficult. But I also think that allies are just really concerned about the about waning U.S. interest in arms control overall. From their perspective, intermediate range forces, you know, that's that's their home. Those those Russian weapons aren't going to cross the Atlantic and target the U.S. homeland. So they really do feel caught in the middle. And I think that would be a top priority for America's closest allies going forward with arms control would be to incorporate those INF systems. I really think that's an important point that the European allies have a strong interest in this matter. And I heard it every day at NATO. And they are looking for ways to continue uh, to constrain and control intermediate range ground launch systems at the negotiating table. So that's a really important point that Heather made. I want to talk about China, though, because my interest is in the larger proliferation of these intermediate range ground launch systems in Eurasia. Uh, it's the bulk of the Chinese forces. Uh, not all of them are nuclear armed. Some of them are, are uh, conventional. The bulk of them are conventionally armed, actually, with some nuclear capability. But they're also being developed by India, by Pakistan, by North Korea, by Iran. Indeed, this was the reason cited by President Putin uh, when he talked about the INF Treaty being beyond its sell-by date. Now, President Putin didn't use that particular American phrase, but he did uh, raised doubts early on in 2007 about the continued value of the INF Treaty because of this proliferation in Eurasia. Well, I say, all right, if that's the problem, let's tackle it. And one of the ways I think we can uh, post some early incentives to get China to the negotiating table is to talk to them about a new kind of intermediate range missile treaty. And I sometimes call it putting the N back in INF. We had a great expert, he's now passed on, sadly named Stan Fraley. He passed on last year, but he always said we need to figure out ways to put the N back in INF. When INF was negotiated in 1987, we had to ban all such missiles, nuclear and conventional, because we couldn't figure out how to monitor and verify limits on nuclear versus conventional INF range systems. Nowadays, I think we do have the tools available. We've been developing some of them in the New START Treaty. We do have the tools available to distinguish nuclear from non-nuclear intermediate range systems and to properly verify and monitor. So I think we could consider a new kind of treaty that would involve more players. I would say first uh, try to get the Chinese to come to the table. And uh, it would involve placing a limit on a nuclear armed missiles of this range and leaving the conventionally armed ones uh, to be deployed or perhaps placing some numerical limits on them as well. But in any event, uh, I do think that there are new ways to think about the future of INF and it should involve the Chinese. It should possibly involve other powers in uh, in Eurasia. And we need to think about it, I think, as, as perhaps being a, a kind of rolling treaty that could incorporate new countries as uh, they see it in their national security interest to become involved. The reason that Chinese might see an incentive is they would, I dare say, like to prevent the deployment of U.S. ground-launched intermediate-range missiles in Asia, 
And quite honestly, I think they'd like to prevent further deployment of Russian intermediate range ground launched missiles in Asia. The Russians have already begun deploying their 9M729 missile, which is the missile that violates the INF Treaty in uh, the far eastern part of the Russian Federation. So I'm sure the Chinese are alert to that. And so they may have some incentive to come to the negotiating table for that reason. Is there any discussion of this type of, of uh, agreement on the table anywhere at all right now? Certainly in the NGO world, there is. There's a lot of, uh, and I hope Heather will comment on this as well, one of the, I would say, positive benefits, of, if it's possible to, to say so, because I do agree with what Heather said about the current administration trying to destroy everything around it in the arms control world. But one of the positive benefits, I would say, is that it's really inspired a lot of interesting conversation in the non-governmental community here in the United States with a lot of good ideas coming out on the table and a lot being um, developed in a way that I think they could uh, go into the hands of a, a new administration interested in, in proceeding forward with some of these ideas. I will say also, though, that I haven't totally given up hope that a new administration that includes a continuation of President Trump in the White House could have some interest in pursuing nuclear arms control because Trump himself has long expressed a desire from the 1980s to be involved in a nuclear arms control agreement. So I don't totally give up hope that if Trump is reelected, we could proceed forward with uh, with some progress in this area. Heather? To the question about what ideas are out there, I think I agree that I think in the NGO world, some really interesting ideas are coming up about how to shape and build trilateral arms control. And obviously the big challenge there is how do you get China involved? I think the Chinese perspective is a really interesting one because they would probably argue that they already do arms control. Indeed, they might say that they are a leader on arms control and they would point to their involvement in larger multilateral processes, right? So the um, Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, the P5 process within the NPT, um, and various other multilateral forums. So they just think about arms control differently. Um, in terms of engaging them in trilateral strategic arms control, as I had said before, they've made it very clear that they want to see U.S. and Russian reductions first. So I think we should start thinking of this as a long-term project. A lot of the ideas that are out there might be, you know, there could be different, like um, there could be good practical recommendations and modalities, but getting Chinese national interest and self-interest engaged with this, I think might just take a bit of time. It's also going to take some time to get China comfortable and to build a culture of transparency in arms control. So things like making them familiar with verification activities, on-site inspections, um, but what might this look like? One of the more interesting ideas that I've heard um, comes from Tong Zhao, who in March published a great piece on this for Arms Control Today. And his recommendation was to set a common ceiling for U.S., Russia, and China of land and air delivery vehicles, and then to give each country flexibility within that ceiling of what the different makeup might be. So these types of ideas, they're really helpful and they do get us thinking more creatively, but we still have a lot of groundwork um, that needs to get laid first, I think. If I could switch gears and ask about North Korea and as it relates to arms control, and some have argued that arms control is the better first step for us when approaching uh, North Korea and the denuclearization issue. What are your thoughts about what arms control with North Korea would look like? 
Well, this, of course, is the $64 million question these days. The Trump administration came in with a deal with North Korea being its top priority, but obviously they haven't gotten very far. And a lot of people are asking, is it too late now? I frankly don't think so, given my experience working this issue. I was in the White House working for President Clinton when the North Koreans announced their intent to withdraw from the Non-Proliferation Treaty in uh, in the early 1990s. And so I've been following this issue for a long time, although not working it as a top priority. I'm always the one who gets... Uh, who gets sent to do the Russian negotiation. <laughs> that's okay. In any event, we've had a lot of interesting work that's gone on over the years. And I guess my conclusion from that is that it's better to shoot for small pragmatic steps and to try to get some momentum going. Uh, for example, during the Clinton administration, we had the opportunity working together with the North Koreans to put in cans the fuel rods that were at the Yongbyon reactor, meaning that they could not take those fuel rods and reprocess them to get plutonium to make nuclear weapons. And we felt that by locking down the fuel rods, this would be a good first step in the direction of broader constraint on North Korea. And it was for a while quite a remarkable deal in which we had U.S. monitors there to ensure that the fuel rods remained locked down. We were working on some uh, additional measures to take care of some broken fuel rods to ensure that, that they could not go astray somehow. It was a very detailed technical project with a lot of cooperation at the time. Not easy because the North Koreans are never easy to deal with, but nevertheless, we were able to succeed with that kind of pragmatic step that had a real impact on constraining North Korean uh, nuclear ambitions. So I guess I would say, based on that experience, to try to start small, try to look for pragmatic projects uh, to get some momentum going, uh, and then uh, to move forward. I don't agree with the notion of establishing this uh, this broadband conditionality and saying, you know, until the North Koreans agree to everything, we're not going to go in any direction uh, to provide some some incentives to them. I think that it always makes sense to try to figure out how uh, to move step by step with uh, pragmatic progress. And that does mean establishing some incentive structure for the other side. A lot of the world looked on as we withdrew from the JCPOA and maybe asking the question of why should we enter into any type of an agreement, particularly one on arms control with the United States, when we saw what happened after years of negotiations with Iran and an agreement with Iran and with European countries and Russia. Just the United States had a change in government and that agreement went out the window. So I'll, I'll take a first stab at that one. Um, just to ha say that I think that this is a really important question that I don't know if I have a solution for, but I think that for the next administration, reestablishing credibility as a partner is going to be and should be a top foreign policy priority. This administration has just done so much damage in terms of whether or not states can trust the U.S. to live up to their word. And as you say, Beverly, the, this idea that things can change every four years, it, it really doesn't promote stability or trust in the U.S. And again, just to flag that this isn't just a problem with partners in arms control like Russia, it's a real problem with allies. 
and uh, the the concern among allies that you're not going to stay in an agreement. U.S. withdrawal from the JCPOA has put the U.K., I can say, in a really difficult position. So how we reestablish that credibility is also a long-term project in and of itself. But I think that it has to start with recommitting to the practice of arms control and articulating very clearly why arms control is in our national interest. And it's in our national interest to manage arms races, to try to prevent crises from escalating, to have transparency and predictability in strategic forces to have insight and um, you know, be able to talk to the Russians in particular about their nuclear forces. Uh, that's something really unique and special that arms control gives to us and isn't a tool that I think we should be giving up on. But in addition to that, I think there's going to have to be a lot of legwork by diplomats, assuming that flights eventually restart and this sort of thing is possible, just to reestablish and rebuild trust at the working level. Uh, I think that, you know, the civil servants who are committed to American national interest and security have really done their absolute best under the current administration to keep those relationships going. But in the absence of leadership support for things like arms control, there's really only so much that you can do. So as I said, I think that should be a top priority for whoever picks up these issues next. Yes, I call it the whipsaw effect, and and Heather described it really well. You know, we came out of the Bush administration with the arms control interagency in the United States pretty much in tatters. It was rebuilt during the Obama administration, and then it has been dismembered again during the Trump administration. And our allies and other countries around the world watch this and they feel whipsawed. They, you know, they think, hmm, is this ever going to be a a stable system in the United States? And will we ever have stable partners, stable partnerships uh, with the United States in the leadership role that it has played historically? So I agree with what Heather has has said. There is also another factor that I think we should think long and hard about and uh, and do so with the Congress. The Senate has a, co- a constitutional responsibility to give advice and consent to the ratification of treaties. It has, however, become extraordinarily difficult in our highly bifurcated system these days with bipartisanship essentially out the window to get a treaty ratified, a treaty of any kind, but a treaty involving nuclear weapons seems especially difficult. We succeeded in doing so with regard to the New START Treaty because at that time the Republican leadership in the Senate allowed the senators to vote according to their consciences. And we very, very carefully worked for months to answer all the questions that the senators had. They took it very seriously, both Republicans and Democrats. Some of the Republicans were never going to vote for the treaty, but some were willing to take a good hard look at whether New START was in the U.S. national security interest and cast their vote in favor of the treaty. So we were able to get the 67 votes, in fact, we got 72 votes in favor of New START, and the Senate thus gave its advice and consent. I've gone on about this for so long because there is a special status to treaties and agreements that are ratified by the Senate. Uh, Of course, any treaty can be withdrawn from. Uh, That is why we write withdrawal clauses into the treaties. 
But nevertheless, it makes it harder to do so uh, because these treaties are the highest legal documents of the land, essentially, and uh, people take them very, very seriously. When you do a deal according to an executive agreement, it is possible for the next executive, the next president, simply to pull the plug on it. And I think uh, that that is also something we should be we should be reflecting on and perhaps, you know, trying to have that conversation on Capitol Hill about whether we can get more of a, a spirit of that constitutional responsibility back into play again, because it is, I think, very important to the future of our, of our system, of our democracy, that the Senate play that advice and consent role. You both are American women who have worked on these issues while living and working in Europe. I want to ask you about how this has influenced your thinking. Um, you both talked a lot about the, the need for the U.S. to pay more attention to its, its allies and partners, particularly in this, in this area. So tell me a little bit about how this influences your thinking and, uh, what is your take on how these issues and debates are developing in the European context? I'm happy to start that. I think I really enjoy being an American abroad because it you just hear so many different things that you would never hear in Washington. You hear all these different perspectives and this different view on the world. Perhaps the most interesting thing that you hear is you, you get a real honest answer about what people think of the United States, which you don't always get, um, especially if you're sitting in, in Washington and, you know, things like trying to understand the Chinese perspective. Well, you also want to understand your allies' perspectives and get into the nitty gritty. I, I worry sometimes that Americans see Europe and NATO as a monolith. And, uh, I mean, Rose, I'm guessing can speak to this better than anybody trying to navigate on reconcile all of those different perspectives within Europe, it must be incredibly challenging. But even within each country, there's all these rich debates and, you know, kind of questions that are being raised and, and um, conversations that are happening, which I think you just don't have that much visibility into them if you're in the U.S., unless you look really hard for it. So just to give one example of that has been the debates over here about nuclear disarmament, the uh, DC, the dual capable aircraft missions, and also the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, the Nuclear Ban Treaty. And you could make this you know, very generic statement that, oh, Europe is under greater pressure to contribute to disarmament. But you have to dive down deeper than that. If you just look at Germany, for example, and the debate going on within German domestic politics about these issues, you realize just how complicated it really is. And I, as I said, I really worry sometimes that American experts make some very broad sweeping generalizations about the European position when you have to dive down and do it a little bit more. One area that I think is particularly important to watch is how Europeans are talking about deterrence issues. There, there are some deterrence dialogues going on here. They're usually connected to or happening within NATO, but I think that that kind of discourse is, it's not quite, it's just developed differently than the United States. I don't want to say it's behind the United States. It's just different. And there's all these different threat perceptions trying to um, come to terms with, for example, what is the impact of the rise of China going to be on NATO as an alliance? What is it going to be um, in terms of the bilateral relations 
that some NATO members have with China. And those conversations are developing. Um, but I do think that's an area that Europe can, I hope that they can continue develop, to develop, is to foster more new ideas, deeper research, and transatlantic dialogue um, around deterrence issues in particular. Yes, I loved uh, Heather's comment that uh, that Europe is not a monolith. Definitely, I confirm, a monolith it ain't. <laughs> that was my experience at NATO. The different national characters and personalities uh, and national goals and priorities are visible every day in the headquarters of NATO. And I had to learn to navigate that uh, system. I have to be honest with you, I was on a really steep learning curve to begin with because I am somebody who's made her career in the bilateral world, first with the USSR and later with the Russian Federation but also countries that are former Soviet states. So uh, it was it was a steep learning curve for me, I do admit. But I was impressed uh, with one thing in the time I was at NATO, and that is the issues of arms control and nonproliferation policy were rising higher and higher on uh, the agenda at NATO. When I f- was going there as Undersecretary of State during the Obama administration, frankly, there wasn't the level of interest there is Nowadays, I used to go and do a regular briefing at NATO when I'd have talks with my Russian counterparts. We'd always stop by NATO. And to be honest, I wasn't getting the ambassadors at those meetings. It wasn't a NAC session. I was normally in some committee meeting with, you know, second and third secretaries taking notes. And that was it. So to me, it was a bit discouraging at the time that there wasn't more interest in the arms control topics. As I came back as DSG, I could see that the level of interest was rising. I think it's partially a result of the debates and discussions Heather talked about around DCA and the presence of of nuclear warheads in certain NATO allied states uh, around the ban treaty, etc. But partially it was also, frankly, the way that the new administration was stirring the pot on these issues and the, the kind of negative uh, influence that had really made some of the allies sit up and take notice. So I appreciate the leadership some allies have been taking on these issues. We haven't talked about conventional arms control at all, but the Germans have been doing a great job, I think, trying to raise issues of conventional arms control and how we might rethink or refurbish some of those conventional arms control regimes. We did talk a bit about open skies, but the confidence-building regime that is called the Vienna Document is very important. Uh, The CFE Treaty has been uh, pretty moribund since the Russians ceased to implement it in 2007, but we could think about ways to reinvent that. And I think the Germans have been very, very helpful in trying to think through some of these issues on the conventional side. So long story short, I appreciate the leadership that the allies are now taking on these arms control issues. This topic is so rich, we could go on forever about it. But I do want to, uh, as we wrap up here, talk about the current generation and its thoughts and generational differences uh, on the issue of arms control. Uh, We've talked about a lot today. How should we think about these issues moving forward and the challenges that do lie ahead, both for established scholars and next gen scholars? Heather, would you start there? Sure. Um, I'll start with your question. I say there's so much to unpack in there. Um, I'll start with the question about generational differences. I think there's three big differences right now from when I started off in the field about 15, 16 years ago. One of the biggest differences is that I think people, particularly more senior established figures, they're much more accessible and you feel much more a sense of community 
particularly with that kind of um, the older and more experienced generation. I remember one of the first kind of nuclear events I went to, I, you know, when everyone's kind of sitting around a bit um, awkwardly at the coffee and I went, there was this expert there who I really admired uh, his work. And I went up to him and introduced myself and he, he kind of blanked me and didn't really give me any time. He didn't really acknowledge me. Whereas I don't think that happens so much anymore. There really feels like a major effort has been made to engage with younger people in the field, to get them excited about it, and to be part of their development. Um, the second big change has been the rise of social media and the way that we do our business. That there's, you know, when, again, 15 years ago, it was mainly about what you were writing. Your ideas came out in books and articles or big speeches. Whereas now it's a lot more hot takes, 280 characters or less, um, or really short pieces. I think that this is a great thing. It gets uh, ideas and research out there more quickly. It's great for um, starting conversations. But I do also obviously think it needs to be done with a bit of care. You still need to have substance and analysis to back up your research and you need to know your brief inside and out. The biggest difference for me is the diversity of the field that, you know, there were a ton of women when, uh, when I was first starting out and a research assistant, I'm guessing there were even less when Rose started. So I feel a bit odd saying this, but I also feel like, you know, we have to flag this moment in history and time that we're at in terms of promoting diversity and the impact of the Black Lives Matter movement, that we still have a lot of work to do to make our community more equitable, more accessible, um, especially to people of color, LGBTQ, non-neurotypical or able-bodied, and different socioeconomic backgrounds. With that said, I think that going forward, the biggest challenge for the next generation is actually going to be finding jobs in this field. There aren't a ton to go around, and with unemployment rising, there's just not going to be as many opportunities as what I worry about. But I also really worry that, that people will lose touch with the concept of service and contributing to national interest and to national security. You can do that in government. I think you can also do it at NGOs and in academia. And I don't know if that concept and that feeling of service is gonna be as strong in the next generation, largely because of some decisions by this administration, but also wider distrust of government. And what does national interest even mean to people anymore? So I, I think that it's, it will be harder for the next generation, which is why I hope that I can contribute to this and that us as a community as a whole can keep that engagement going forward and can get people excited about arms control. Like I'm such a believer in it. I find it is really exciting. It's this opportunity for creativity and imagining a better world that is based on cooperation. That is something that I would hope that we can get people a bit inspired about. Rose? That's a great answer, Heather. And I'm going to take it in a slightly different direction. But I did want to say one thing that I found incredibly encouraging. You know, some years ago, I was I was teaching and I was thinking about what kind of course to offer. And I thought about offering a course on nuclear uh, doctrine, strategy, and arms control measures and basically, I was advised, you're not going to get any students. There just isn't the interest. 
So I didn't end up teaching the course in that area. Uh, but nowadays, what I'm seeing and I'm hearing from a lot of my colleagues, there's a major interest among university students in these issues. I've seen it at Stanford since I got back uh, from Brussels last October. Really smart student teams coming to talk to me about their projects, wanting their uh, projects reviewed or wanting my advice on what I do in a in an arms control simulation. It's been really inspiring for me to see the interest, but I'm hearing it too from colleagues teaching on the East Coast. And uh, I think that it's extremely exciting that there is this level of interest now among the student community. Now, my biggest question and what I've been racking my brains about for a long time is how do we inspire the street? How do we get young people engaged and involved on the, these issues in the way they are engaged and in, involved on Black Lives Matter? They're engaged and in, involved uh, on the Me Too issues. They are engaged and involved, frankly, on climate change. And that was a huge deal in, in Europe last year uh, with Greta Thunberg and, and her movement really taking off with students out on the street every Thursday, uh, taking, you know, taking time off of school to, to march. So how do we get that level of interest on the street with every every young person? Um, I remember, of course, the freeze movement of the 1980s when there were a lot of young people out on the street and they cared about these issues and they thought about these issues. I think one way to think about it is to be more savvy uh, about using social media, just as, as Heather was was discussing, and to, to try to engage and involve people in, in that way. Another way I've been thinking about is to try to link up the concerns about environmental degradation with uh, what would happen actually if a nuclear, even a single nuclear detonation went off anywhere in the world, it would have an effect on our environment. And heaven forbid, if there were a nuclear exchange, it would have a devastating effect on our environment and shut down agriculture, causing, you know, dire uh, famine and, and uh, a furtherance of, of disaster for the, the international community, for the, for the global population. So I'm trying to think about, is there a way that we can now link up these issues of, of nuclear policy, nuclear control with the concerns and really strong concerns about the environment? Because I do think that we need more interest on the street in these issues I welcome the interest among the smart young students I'm meeting, but we need more interest in the broader uh, youth community as well. Rose and Heather, this has been a fabulous and wonderful conversation. I learn so much every time I talk to you. Thank you so much for being here on the Smart Women, Smart Power podcast. I really appreciate it. Thank you. This was great. And it's always wonderful to hear Rose's reflections. I feel like I learned a lot too. Mutual admiration society, Heather. <laughs> Thank you both. Subscribe to the Smart Women Smart Power podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to good content. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Smart Women, and I'm at Beverly Kirk. Thanks for listening. See you next time.